We are absolutely delighted to have you here tonight, Professor Nancy Sherman from Georgetown University. Uh, Professor Sherman is University Professor and Professor of Ethics at Georgetown University, and she's come to the Center for the International Politics of Conflict, Rights, and Justice to speak about her most recent book, After War, Healing the Moral Wounds of Our Soldiers. Nancy, your your background is, is very impressive and also extremely interesting given the the topic of your current work in addition to your academic work at Georgetown you were also I see the inaugural holder of the distinguished chair in ethics at the United States Naval Academy and designed the brigade-wide military ethics course and you have research training in psychoanalysis so this is an extraordinary um uh, a set of of experiences that you bring to your research why did you decide to write this particular book? So this book is a homecoming of sorts. It's the third in a series of of books about war, going to war and being at war and coming home, and I think the last. And I was um, seeing veterans coming into my classrooms at Georgetown, and I felt I wanted to get to know them better, and often the terms of post-traumatic stress weren't really resonating with them, but War was a a moral mess for them, and they were trying to process it in classes I taught largely on war ethics or with a large component of war ethics. So it was a way, the book became a way of getting to know my veterans and also with them in partnership and one-on-one engagement, trying to morally process their war experiences. So tell me, how did you do your research on this book? Well, the research was uh, unusual and probably not what a social scientist would do from the start. Um, it was more uh, story-driven or anecdotal-driven. Um, I came to know large numbers of veterans through classroom, but also uh, outreach in the community, working for a long time with the military, going to various events, and also working cl- quite closely with those in the clinical community um, at Walter Reed, which is in my neighborhood, the flagship um, medical hospital now in Bethesda, Maryland. And uh, I went there as well um, to their uh, their gym, where there is a lot of rehabilitation of very, very war-torn bodies. And I'll speak a little bit about that later. And I started to have friendships, is the best way to put it. I really came to know folks, again, whether um, informally, in classes, or through these other ways. And people really wanted to tell their stories. So for writing the book, I had permissions down the line for all of this. I often recorded um, our conversations. And when it came time to think about it, I was processing it as a philosopher and as someone who's had some psychoanalytic, psychotherapeutic training. Um, I, I, I was trying to find conceptual tools that helped them understand their wars and helped me. And that ended up being a vocabulary of moral emotions that I talk a lot about in the book. So we're used to hearing a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder. But you talk very specifically about moral injury. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by moral injury? Why is that the sort of center point? So post-traumatic stress disorder is a diagnosis, a clinical diagnosis in the States. It it came to be in 1980 with what we call the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, really an insurance Bible for uh, submitting 
claims for patients. And it, it was the child of Vietnam, but also of women who were suffering from sexual assault who had very similar symptoms to those guys that were coming home from Vietnam. And it was it's largely behavioral influence. The cause or ideology is outside in the sense of uh, fear, fear of, of, of a life threat. And you respond by staying hyper-aroused, or you respond by um, having intrusive memories of the traumatic event, uh, a frightening, very fearful, life-threatening event, or you dissociate. Those are the clusters. So again, it's a very clinical model, meets certain criteria, um, et cetera, and behaviorally based. And of course, it's much older. You know, psychological anguish of wars, uh, war, war nerves, war neurasthenia, the World War poets would talk about, um, and, and ancient. But the idea of the moral dimensions of psychological anguish, the guilt you feel for collateral incidents, uh, the shame you might feel for not being able to help civilians enough or help your buddy, um, enormous moral despair as to whether this is the war you really want to be fighting, sense of helplessness, of, futili- moral, f- of moral futility, that the war is not going to end in a victory that's worth having or any kind of ending. That's a dimension you don't always get when you think about PTSD as hyper-aroused because fear and, and a fear of life threat unleashed it. So in in the book, you tell some really uh, fascinating stories about individuals returning and feeling resentment and not really being welcomed with open arms, in part because, of course, Iraq and Afghanistan have been extraordinarily um, problematic wars for America. I, I looked today, and in, in 2015, a Gallup poll showed that 51% of those Americans polled said that the 2003 Iraq War was a mistake. 42% um, said the 2001 Afghanistan was, War was a mistake. So this is a context, of, as you say in the book, where, where individuals are returning from war, returning from service, and they're not really probably being greeted with, with open arms. But this is a story that, as Americans, we're somewhat familiar with, because I'm sure people go back to Vietnam. So how does this dilemma of moral injury... How is it shaped by the civilian context, and and how does it compare to what individuals experienced when they were returning from service in in Vietnam? So in Vietnam, or or post-Vietnam, which was a fully conscripted, or by and large conscripted army, soldiers, sailors, marines, wingmen would come home, and they would be reviled, really, for the war. We didn't separate the war from the warrior, is how we would put it. And many had enormous feelings of uncertainty about their wars and also anger that they were being confused at times for and with baby killers. My Lai was in the minds of many, um, and My Lai became a turning point for the war. So, But there was general scorn and contempt and reviling for soldiers that left long and deep scars, and the, the Vietnam a memorial was very, very slow in getting built because of so much turmoil about this war. And whether you were really a supporter of it or not, it was the 60s, and it opened up many, many wounds in society. 
We're now in a war where it's uh, non-conscripted, it's volunteer, it was post 9-11 conscript, and it's only a half percent that are serving, and we've learned to separate the war from the warrior. So we say, thank you for your service, not necessarily saying we support your war. But that's all we say. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, as one person said to me, a, a recent service member of Returning from Wars, he said, don't just tell me thank you for your service, first say please. Which was a very enigmatic thing to say, and he said it in the context of a, of a mill-sieve dialogue um, in a community-based uh, group. But it set me thinking, and I write a chapter about it, thinking, well, what he really means is what moral burden are you carrying for the war, and have you thought about what wars you're sending me to? And have you thought about just what that social contract is to have a conscripted or non-conscripted military and what's owed to them when they return? So I think the relationship is very complicated. It's under thought by most civilians and many fear that they will be stepping in private territory should they say something more than thank you for your service, even the something more on an airplane or when someone's coming home in camis. Where'd you go? Where were you? Where are you headed? Um, how was it for you? They're, they look exotic. Folks in camis look exotic. And I think that very polite thank you for your service is distance creating. And so that's, I think, the relationship that has to be worked on and that I try to work on in the book. It's fascinating in the book when you discuss this issue or the concept of responsibility, which, of course, accountability, international criminal accountability is defined I would, in the international system quite narrowly as being about individuals who are, who are responsible and should be aware of particular atrocities taking place. But your discussion of responsibility is much richer, and there are many layers to it. Could you tell us a little bit more about this? Because this, this relationship between the returning military member and civilians and when you when you get into this conversation about civilian responsibility you're really moving into a terrain that's very contentious and very important i think and and not one that people are really talking about more broadly and that's, publicly that's right it's so we're not talking just about legal responsibility or responsibility before international courts of law or necessarily before court martials um, or Article 32s in our country, lesser forms of, of punishment and sanction. We're talking about, when I talk about it, I'm informed here by a philosophical tradition of holding oneself and others to account or holding, holding people morally responsible through often expressed, expressed a funny word, but often felt privately or expressed publicly through Reactive attitudes was the word that P.F. Strawson used, but that's a bad word. Through emotions, we're very familiar with feelings of guilt, which are first personal, feelings of shame, also first personal, feelings of resentment, like we just talked about. Um, You know, you're not really carrying any moral burden of war. You were at the mall while I was at war. You know, you don't even have a tax on your on this war. What? What do? How do you feel it? Um, there were no rationings, et cetera, like World War II. So, the ver- so these are personal se- uh, uh, sentiments of holding oneself or others to account that you can ex- feel toward yourself in the case of guilt or shame, toward another in the case of resentment, third personally in uh, indignation, moral protest, moral outcry. 
on behalf of others, not necessarily on behalf of the person um, that you're addressing it to. Um, and you can feel it as an agent in the sense of guilt. I did something wrong, or I think I did something wrong, or it feels like I did something wrong, or shame, I fell from standards, or resentment. Um, it, it, it seems like you did something wrong. And so you're right. In that sense, my view is that soldiers often, because of the lofty ideals that they're trained with, a can-do mentality, absolutes that they're given before they go, you know, never leave a comrade behind, cover each other's back, bring your buddies home. For an 18 to 22, in a zero defect management policy ethos, you know, you, you get everything right, they take all that literally and they hold themselves kind of strictly liable, a legal term again. Um, even for what we would call apparent transgressions, ones that don't track real culpability, don't track real negligence, don't track real war atrocity. But they feel it very, very strongly. So they feel survivor guilt when they come home without their buddies. They feel very confused when it may be even a permiss legally permissible collateral incident, but one that nonetheless they see up close. And they see a child who could be their sibling's age or their daughter's age, and then they identify, and it feels yucky. You know, the brain, especially an 18 to 24-year-old brain, does not easily distinguish between discriminate, justified killing in war, uh, where there's the best case, just war and just conduct, and murder. And so it all gets mushed in their heads, and I think they feel enormous moral residue and, and senses of responsibility that can be searing in the sense of suicidal. Americans are often perceived, and I think especially individual servicemen, um, by critics abroad as not valuing the lives of others as much as they value the lives of Americans. Mm. And one of the stories that you tell in the book, which I thought was, was again, very um Emotive is the story of the individual who has to deliver a paltry sum of money to the family who has lost the father, and the horror that he feels, the emotional horror that he feels in, in delivering this very small sum. And so, my question for you is: in your in your experiences, is in a sense, embedding with these people, did you did you feel a difference? Was that you know the loyalty to the Americans in the group? felt to be more significant in terms of guilt um, and moral injury, or did the the violence that was inflicted intentionally or unintentionally on Iraqis and, and local Afghan citizens equally harmful to individuals in on this moral dimension? I think they registered both, um, although they might have gotten a sense of uh, disillusionment as war, the war went on and as uh, deals got shadier and shadier with warlords and the like. Um, but you were talking earlier about uh, Major Jeff Hall, who who had this uh, uh, paltry sum of $750 to give to a family that had survived. The, the daughter and uncle had survived, but three members of the family had died in a, uh, a collateral incident in, in Baghdad. And he also had to deliver them certificates that said enemy combatant because that's all the Iraqi Ministry of Health could come up with at the time. And they thought that these were enemies. And so he felt he not only lost his his competence as a soldier because he wasn't doing the things he was trained to do 
engage and destroy in this counterinsurgency war. But he lost his goodness as a person because he had to be able to do this. And I think he took very, very seriously um, the um, local civilians. And I think most of those who uh, are engaged in these wars have I mean, they feel they feel torn in all ways. They feel torn that they can't do more for the civilians. They feel horrible right now. Those that I know that were were stationed in Mosul or or Fallujah, um, that th- those that they tried so hard to help are again under siege um, and trapped even worse. They feel crappy when those they trained this is two years ago or so leave their posts. This is the Iraqi. Uh, soldiers now they seem to be doing better in Ramadi and other places, so I think they take their they take very seriously their work. Identify with the locals, you know. Some there have been real conflicts. Counterinsurgency puts a lot of demands uh, on the soldier to protect the local civilian at the cost of your own troops. General McPherson calls it courageous restraint. It's not a term I particularly like, but it was meant to bootstrap a sense of. Do encourage your troops and create a, a command climate where your troops will restrain themselves in, in calling in an airstrike. They simply couldn't call in an airstrike. There was, this came up again recently in the case of the death of a special forces guy. I think it was Afghanistan. And and in your own government, we were talking earlier about these uh, the I Hat Iraqi um, historic uh, allegation tribunals, if that's what it's called. Now knocking, doing some investigation to see if people were involved in. Um, war crimes or warlike crimes and there's real sense that people were doing their very best to protect themselves force protection you know force protection always is countered with protection of civilians and getting your mission done you're always moving the risk to one of those three goals and um, I think people do take seriously giving up some force protection in order to protect innocents so let's let's come back to this question of the investigations and criminal accountability and and of course as we know there's been very little formal criminal accountability with respect to individual American citizens in Iraq engaging in Iraq or Afghanistan and d- do you think that matters one of the critiques that sometimes made about international criminal justice is that Sometimes convictions have an unintended consequence, which is that those who don't come to trial and who aren't convicted are, in a sense, given emotionally a free pass. And it, and it, it relieves them of any moral responsibility, even those who may actually be quite responsible. Is there an argument to be made that actually had there or were there to be more accountability that some of these issues that you discuss would be either wrongly or, or rightly alleviated? Or do you just think the, that, the, that the moral um, injury is, is much more complex? I think there's been a lot of moral exploitation, you might say. Um, the crap rolls downhill, and the more junior you are, more subordinated you are in the chain of command, the more falls on your shoulder, uh, both s- structurally, formally, and also personally. The young enlisted Marine who, like one I write about, who comes from L.A., who's a member of a gang, you know, is used to protecting his buddies very macho, and then finds that he can't bring home all his baby birds, places a lot of liability on himself, independent of any commanders formally taking more responsibility or independent of them putting formal responsibility or sanctioning on him. So uh, there is definitely 
personal imposition of responsibility that can be distorted. There's also um, exploitation of that, I think, by those higher up in command and who protect themselves and their careers um, and want to be promoted and make it further in the career structure of officer land and general command. And in addition, I think, you know, I, I do think we should have had more accountability, for example, with respect to Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib. We now have very complicated accountability for the American Psychological <laughs> Association that was complicit with the CIA um, and the Department of Defense um, in writing ethics rules to comply with what the DOD, Department of Defense, and CIA wanted. Very complex. And they were involved in interrogation. So, and the Pentagon had said, we don't want the APA anymore. They're trying to disentangle themselves. But that was very slow. I was involved in that. 2005, we only now, 2015, have had some resolution of that. So, you know, and some have claimed that um, Bush and Obama and Cheney and and, um, and Rumsfeld should be held accountable as war criminals. Some have said, you know, the American press has made a huge deal and the American military of Petraeus's um, infidelity. Um, you know, he should have been held accountable for his war. Forget the infidelity. <laughs> you know, misplacement of the object of, bl- of blame. <laughs> You did indeed in October 2005 visit the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center as part of an independent observer team assessing the medical and mental health care of detainees. You've continued to work throughout the last decade, I imagine, with many individuals returning. What is the uptake of your work now? I mean, we don't normally think of moral philosophers, even from Georgetown University, being quite so engaged and ha- their research having quite such direct impact. But But clearly yours has and will continue to be, how would you capture for our audience the the impact or the uptake from your most recent book? Well, I I feel very um, pleased that it's been taken up by those in command. Um, Just upon getting home uh, in two days, I will be briefing the three and four star leadership of the Marines. So that's the top level Marines for two hours um, about moral injury. So they really want to hear more about how to uh, overcome some of the resistance to seeking mental health that that afflicts the military ethos. Um, they don't quite know what it feels like to be burdened down and beaten down in the way many soldiers or Marines coming home do, but they're open to that. So that's um, great um, a great access, you might say, to to those who can make lasting decisions, and if not lasting, very important decisions for right down the chain. In the case of uh, the Guantanamo aftermath, well, I was involved in an investigation, uh, was called in as sort of a legal expert by the law group that was um, called in by the American Psychological Association to review their own documents. The American Psychological Association was found deeply wanting. You know, they essentially put the mission of national security and pleasing the Defense Department in front of humanistic treatment of clients and patients and met and humanistic medical practice, which is really a no-no. So I, I've been pleased. I think there's just a lot of herd out there. They're an isolated and alienated group, the military is, despite the fact that we, we see folks in uniform and we see folks high, high up, but um, those coming home don't hear much, and, and as well as women in uniform. I talk in the book and we'll, we'll talk 
um, in my talk about women in uniform. You know, 15% or so of the forces are women in the states. I think your numbers are lower, closer to 10%, a little under 10%. But there's still a sense that it's a it's a boys club. It's a very all male club, hyper masculine environment, and I'm a kind of um, as a uh, admiral put it this morning to me on the phone. I'm a trusted outsider. <laughs> That's probably a pretty good role to be in. <laughs> well, we're very glad to have you speaking to our SOAS community this evening. Thank you so much. That lecture will be recorded for our listeners. Professor Sherman of Georgetown University speaking about her book After War. Thank you, and and we look forward to this evening. Thank you so much, Leslie.